Hello. So this episode is with Kasturi Tokia, uh, recorded in the London, in the London, UK. Um, she is the co-founder of Esprit Concrete, and she's in the last few months of her training as a counseling psychologist. Uh, it was a delight to get to know her better. I'd already met her about a year and a half ago, and this time we got to talk a bit more about uh, Esprit Concrete and its origins. So... I really have enjoyed doing these podcasts. Um, this one's going to be the last one for a while since I have already landed back in Toronto. I learned a lot through doing these podcasts and um, this episode really epitomized it. So I hope you guys enjoy and let's go. There's a lot of interesting information that I want to know more about, about like a spread and how you came to to that idea, how how it formed, where it is at the moment, where it's going. Mm. Um, There's about six questions in there already. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start. So. Um, so I guess where it formed, um, I think my very first class was with Yao at the university um, where I'm doing my doctorate. Mm. And it was my first experience ever and I didn't know what I was getting into. Um, and that's not uncommon for me to turn up and try something that I don't know anything about. Mm. So I tried it and as soon as I was in the movement process and listening to how Yao was kind of getting us to almost explore the stuff that he was getting us to do without much direction and then going into technique later, mm. I kind of felt like I was experiencing... Um, a self-discovery of myself through movement that I was spending so much time doing psychologically and emotionally in therapy that I kind of saw a parallel almost from day one. So I remember, you know, two things, well, three things I went away from. Like the first one was just, I absolutely love konging, sword shows. Like I just, the, my, I did it on my very first class and I was just like, wow, you know, Yao was breaking it down into doing kind of rabbits, getting on top of the rail instead of over them. And I was just like, that's really scary. Why don't you just go over? He was like, okay, go over. And then as soon as I did it, I had all these reactions from people going, wow, it's your first class. That's a Kong. And I was like, but what you guys are doing is like terrifying. Why are you stopping on the rail? <laughs> <laughs> and um, from that moment, I just became obsessed with the movement side of it. And then I took away as well from the session that I was, I realized that I had so much going through my head at the time whenever I was asked to do something. And I'd never been in a movement setting that had challenged me in that way before. So I was questioning different ways of thinking that I had. I was questioning why I was feeling certain things, how irrational I was in that moment. Um, and for somebody who, you know, has become quite thinky mm. and heady, it was almost like my emotions on a plate. And so for me to have coped through whatever I've coped through, I've had to detach myself from my feeling, but still be very aware of what they are. Mm. And this was a situation of me being really messy and confused and excited and terrified at the same time. And everything just seemed like a mess. Um, so I was like, oh, there's so much process to be pulled out of this. So first was just finding the Kong and loving the movement. The second thing was this idea of just how exposing it was for me and how different I was as a person within that setting um, and then as a result of that I took away thinking 
you can see a person's formulation in how they respond to the movement. Mm. So in that sense, you can see their emotional, psychological, thought, coping, makeup, so to speak, um, in their session. Uh, or at least I could. And I was really excited by that because at the time I was busy choosing my thesis and everybody knew kind of what they wanted to do. And I was just like, I don't know, I want to do counselling psychology, but... I'm not passionate about anything mainstream. Like, I'm fascinated by it. Um, and I think it's just incredible, the work that people do. But everyone was coming up with quite kind of, um, I guess, traditional things like um, studying dementia or the trainee experience or, you know. And I just wasn't motivated by anything. And I kind of felt like, oh, how am I going to write a thesis on something I'm not really keen on? So after my first class, I was like, can I do something about parkour? Would that be a thing? Hmm. Um, so Yao and I got together and as our relationship progressed, we became like really close and started training more. And the more that I was training, the more that I was thinking about the psychology behind it and the therapy aspect to it. And then I got really badly hurt. And um, I shouldn't really say it like that. I hurt myself really badly because it was a it was a decision I made. Um, and in that moment, I had to really, really battle with the idea of, do I keep going? You know, what makes this so important to me that I have to keep going? Um, or do I just stop? And if I stop, how am I going to kind of rationalise that to myself? Um, and that gave me even more insight into what my expectations of myself were, what, how much other people's opinions of me mattered, um, how was this linked to mistakes I've made in the past, and just everything started hitting me. And I was like, wow, this is actually something that is really, really relevant to counselling psychology. Um, and it's something that I'd really like somebody to be able to guide me through, but actually I don't know anyone in parkour thinking about parkour in that way. So maybe there's a bit of a niche there. Um, so I decided to focus in a little bit with the help of my supervisor, um, Catherine and London met um, to think about what is it that lack of progression is about in parkour you know what kind of things contribute so I didn't want to kind of go specifically into injury because that's what I feel most people research um, but also there was a lot of positive um, research being done on, psycho on, on parkour at the time and I kind of felt like the stresses of parkour and the costs of parkour and the stuff that you figure out about yourself that maybe you don't like within parkour training was the stuff that fascinated me um, and had the potential for a lot of growth. So I decided to study lack of progression and through it, I knew there wasn't any research on it before, um, especially not in counselling psychology. And a lot of the stuff that was done was very anthropological and kind of self-driven, so narrative-led. Um, and I wanted something a little bit more quantifiable and... Um, I guess, kind of quasi-scientific. Uh, so I went for interviews mm. um, and qualitative research and using grounded theory to generate a model um, to better understand what people are going through, either when they're not progressing or when they're on their way to quitting okay. and stopping. Um, so through that, I realised actually the way that I think about it was helping me progress. It was helping me stay within the sport. It was healing me as well from the very severe traumatic experience of my injury. Um, and the way that I was doing it was using the tools I had, which were therapeutic, um, but applying it to a very physical 
sort of medium. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the resistance that I felt um, while going through that process, um, all the avoidance that I showed, um, maybe even the overindulgence of it, kind of became something that I had to process in a very um, conceptualized way mm-hmm. and understand where I came from, what had happened to actually trigger me to do that, um, what I, what had I chosen, and where did I want to go. So it was kind of goal-orientated, but also at the same time iterative, going back into the person that I am. And I started to think with Yao when I came back from uh, taking a year out and going to train uh, with street movement, um, just for the parkour side of things and the community side, but getting a bit more in touch with it, mm. meeting the Yamakasi on our lovely trip at Every that they took us on. Um, I came back thinking, this is something that doesn't really exist. It's something that I feel, you know, I can make something of. I understand it, even if it seems strange to everyone else. Um, let's give it a go. And Yao was ready to move on to his next chapter. Um, he left PKG and we started this and we just very, very, you know, low expectation, just one class. Anyone who, you know, knows any of us, wants to try this thing, come and try it. And for the six, first six months especially, it was very um, sort of test-like. You know, we just gave stuff a go. But I began to understand what I had to bear in mind, what were the risk factors of what we were doing, um, how much was too much, how little was too little, how do we explain this, um, why would people need to do this, you know, how do we reach people who've been practicing parkour a long time in a certain modality, um, as well as people who are just entering it, you know, um, and I guess slowly, slowly our whole model became more about preventative practice, and yes, of course, the focus was heavily on mental health, but really thinking about mental health as a continuum that everybody is on, and having a model that's kind of informed on the idea that we never want to be at the mental illness end. So how can we try to find a way to train parkour in a way that's safe, not just physically, mm-hmm. but also psychologically and emotionally, in order for us to safeguard our sense of self in this practice? Um, in a practice that's really under a lot of pressure, I think, because it's so exciting. It's growing every single minute and it's changing every day. Um, and I think with that, we have the opportunity to learn from sports that have already gone mm. and have done the stuff that we're going to do in the next 10 years and kind of learn about, you know, what stresses they were maybe unable to cope with. You know, what things did they forget about? Um, how, cent- how central was the athlete in this whole thing? You know, what happened after the athlete finished being an athlete, you know? Mm. So I got more involved with Parkour UK and luckily Charlotte from Free Your Instinct um, sought me out and she was like, you know, we're working on the Mental Health Action Board. It gives you access to like the Sports and Recreational Alliance and, you know, you can find out how other sports are also incorporating mental health and normalising it a bit in their practice. And I realised how super relevant it was to an athlete's journey. Um, So I started doing a lot more research on burnout in general um what were the sports psychologists you know doing what were their model uh, their models and who from what kind of approach were they uh, working from is it top down like model to person mm. or person to model um and why actually would parkour be any different you know and i think one undeniably i'm studying parkour and 
training it and teaching it and whatever because I'm just absolutely in love with it. Mm. But when I found Art du Déplacement, when I went to France, I realised the origins of parkour. And not parkour in the way that, you know, a lot of debate is right now. Parkour belongs to David Bell and yes. But what everybody kind of generally now calls parkour, the values part of it, I felt really came from art of displacement. And there, who you are as a person and what you do with yourself is kind of so central that I found a really strong link to counselling psychology there. Um, so I thought, you know, if knowing yourself kind of helps every realm of life, why not try to incorporate that a bit into training? Um, and why not have training inform your life and life inform your training? That way the bridge and the gap between them both is lessened. So if one or the other is not going too well, there's a compensation that works to try to heal the other. So it's like two halves. Okay. Um, because for me, the biggest thing that people suffer from is lack of continuity. And lack of progression is a form of lack of continuity. But so is retirement. So is, you know, um, changing a sport. Mm. So is having a baby. Mm. Um, and I think as you move through those stages, if your training style is informed and adapted to coping with uncertainty, understanding how you actually manage uncertainty, what's your relationship to it, then you're better managing risk that could come up in the future. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, that's kind of the essence of Arthur de Blasmore parkour training. You know, it's being prepared for the unknown. It's being prepared for anything that might happen. Yeah. Not just for yourself, but then knowing how you work enough to then reach out and be there for someone else. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that naturally, because people are, you know, often so empathetic, there's a lot of great good that people do for other people. And somehow we kind of get forgotten. You know, just you. What do you still have to work on? Um, and I think... In a world that's often quite fast-paced, especially me living in London, like I feel like I never stop, you kind of forget to take time for yourself and just stop and put a pause on it and kind of reflect on what are you doing? Why are you doing that? You know, are, are you happy doing what you're doing? Um, are your expectations and your goals in line? Are they not? Um, mm. What are the costs of that? What are the benefits of that? And at the end of the day, is it costing your park or progression? And if it is, what I've come to find out is that sometimes it's got nothing to do with not being able to do a movement or not understanding the technicalities of a movement. Sometimes it's just much deeper than that and it's your perception of yourself that's holding you back. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe even your understanding of how to cope with what's in front of you is holding you back. Uh, so yeah, I think Esprit Concrete started off being kind of, you know, how do we combine therapy with this movement form, art mm. form. And then it became a much stronger agenda of how do we normalise therapy within a movement context? Mm -hmm. um, because as a, as a psychologist-to-be, but as a qualified therapist, I kind of feel like that's the biggest hurdle. You know, asking for help is something that a lot of our students find really challenging because when you ask for help, it means there's something wrong. Yeah. Actually, what if it's just so normal to ask for help because we're human, you know? And if we're training a sport that's so closely linked to humanity and the values of humanity, then surely we should try to bridge that. Um, but at the same time, from what I learned from, you know, especially our time in Scotland, 
consent is everything it's everything in therapy it's everything even in training you know what you're turning up to you have a choice in what you're turning up to you have a choice on what you work on and I think over the last year we've become better at kind of informing people what they're in for kind of understanding not whether they want that or not but how much of it are they ready for um, because you can kind of come to a class and just be there with us see how it feels um, and now we have a lot more people turning up and they're not really focused consciously on working on anything at the beginning they're just kind of sussing us out yeah. and through sussing us out they kind of think oh that question makes me think about something about myself and then maybe four weeks down the line they're like it's really interesting what you said about that because I find I do that and their journey begins you know um, and sometimes it's not at all for people because we're quite driven in the long game rather than the short gains um, and you know there are so many brilliant organizations in London that are doing their own thing and are focusing more on the movement side of things even though anyone who teaches parkour usually has the person <laughs> in mind um, that we kind of say you know actually for you maybe it might be better for you to try that guy's class or that person's class and um, we're always here if you want to come back. Um, so Esprit Concrete now has uh, classes that are open to the community, adult and young people. Um, we also work, we try to work very closely with schools and charities. Um, we often do uh, grant submissions so that we can try to make the stuff that we do free for the participant, but yeah. costed for, so that the coaches get paid. Um, and we also uh, have kind of different avenues and work. So we've got athlete development, which focuses purely on uh, either athletes who come to us with an issue mm. or just athletes that want to develop into you know, making this a career, in which case, uh, if they're in line with what we're doing, we use our approach to help them. And it's a very self-development kind of led approach. Mm. Then we have the research side of it, which not only informs my PhD, but also work that we're doing within the uh, neuroscience kind of realm that I started with Germany, a kind of link with NeuroWorks that um, we do some, we're beginning to do some kind of art and parkour dance kind of research stuff that's going to be led hopefully by Lou, mm -hmm. who's uh, who works with us. Um, and whenever we do work with... Uh, charity-based organizations that are mental health focused we usually try to do some kind of internal audit so there's always a sort of assessment before and assessment after to kind of gauge some kind of change um, and then we do abroad workshops that depending on who's turning up are focused specifically on what we feel we can bring to that community mm -hmm. So um, as opposed to the first year where we were just so excited, people wanted to kind of know us. So we kind of said yes to everything. Now we take a bit more time to kind of know what kind of event it is, what kind of participants are going to come. Are they going to know who we are and what we do? Is it something that they're consenting to? Is it something they're willing to kind of know more about? And we try to split up the workshop into um, being effective for uh, students who are just wanting to practice, but also coaches. Um, so what kind of key parts of our approach can be easily kind of absorbed um, by coaches in their everyday kind of training? Um, what kind of self-development areas can we leave them with just to reflect on for the year? Yeah. Um, but also what kind of different um, games or challenges or teaching tools can we bring to them that kind of exposes what we're trying to um, have them work on 
without necessarily having it be too intense. So um, I think that's always a really hard balance to strike. And I think we really have to work with who's there. So I know that that's kind of what every coach does. You know, you never know who's turning up. But for for us, I think the challenge is that within that session, I have to get a sense of everyone's readiness to change, mm -hmm. everyone's readiness to question, uh, everyone's defences, their um, coping strategies, and every single workshop has a portion of individual feedback to everyone, mm -hmm. which means we try to keep the groups small, about 12, mm -hmm. um, and then group learning as well. Um, and those workshops uh, vary in length from one and a half hours to sometimes six. Mm. Uh, and it's really, really process driven, you know, so there's a lot of sharing. It's very iterative. We learn from the students, the students learn from us. But they often leave feeling from what they've told us, you know, a lot more aware of what things they want to look into further. Mm. Sometimes they feel slightly overwhelmed and they're a little bit shocked because they didn't really realise that there was so much to think about. Mm -hmm. And we always have a kind of debrief process where they can get in touch directly with me. Mm -hmm. um, we have this even after classes. So sometimes it is 11pm, but something really important has been triggered in that session and that person needs to discuss it. That happens, um, which takes me to the model part of it, that as a standard, uh, um, everyone who comes to Esprit Concrete classes are also offered one-to-one -one classes. Mm -hmm. um, and those are not necessarily movement based so they can be just with me and Yao one-to-one but they are also face-to-face -face therapy sessions um, and the therapy sessions can either be to work on something that they're bringing or something that comes up in the session um, and that way parkour is a medium but it sometimes is also the tool to expose what they actually end up working on with me um, and most of our clients I think stay with me for about a year or two, um, sometimes more um, targeted work. So, you know, I have uh, 28 sessions and we make sure that we do what we plan to do within those 28 sessions and the option for further exploration is always there. Yeah. Um, but it really depends on who's coming and what they need. Right. Um, well, like you were yeah. saying, you want, if you wanted to normalize it, it's not just 28 sessions because who knows what might happen later on and perhaps there needs to be more intensity at one point more intensity intensity later on yeah and so with the workshops that are abroad if they are one and a half hours to six hours um how does it look like like i'm because with the classes you are in one city they can contact you if necessary for whatever might happen mm -hmm. But when you are at a place for like one or two days only, mm -hmm. like we, we talked about it yesterday, like maybe you would have Skype sessions yeah. with people if necessary. But Yeah, so um, I think one thing I've started uh, kind of implementing as a rule is that we don't, for example, turn up in the morning and do the workshop in the afternoon. We kind of get to know the space. We talk to the organisers. We talk to the people who are usually current students at that place. Mm. We get to know the situation a little bit better so that we can adapt on site, mm. whatever we plan. But a general workshop looks very much similar in format to any other parkour class in the sense that we have a warm-up. We have a theme within that session that we work on. Um, we have a summary and a feedback session at the end. Mm. Um, but 
I think what's different is that the theme is always uh, psychological. So when we think about um, the warm up, we get them to really think about how they're experiencing themselves today, uh, what different objects are speaking what to them, you know, what um, kind of things have they come in with in terms of expectations, what things are they hoping to leave with mm. um, on a personal level. And during that time, there's also an assessment being done by me where I'm trying to get a sense of how they're working. Mm. Um, what are they saying? What are they not saying? How are they communicating? Is it nonverbal? Is it verbal? Is it unconscious? What's going on, you know, with what's happening? And that then goes directly into individual goals that we may set for them mm. within the same task we've originally planned. Okay. Um, so it's very, very personalized. Um, and during that, there's generally just what I like to think of as breadcrumbs mm -hmm. that we try to drop along the way through an exercise that might be based on resilience, for example, right. to highlight people's relationship to the task mm -hmm. and ask them to think about that relationship in relation to their other relationships in life. Are there any similarities or differences? Okay. Um, sometimes we ask the question and sometimes we don't. Right. It depends on um, how much that person seems to have an understanding of themselves, how much they seem to be wanting to ask those questions. Mm. Um, and sometimes a person will go the whole session not speaking to us at all, really. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the session, we'll just ask, you know, could we ask you for a little bit of feedback? Um, we have a couple of things we'd like to share with you. Is that okay? Mm. So it really is dependent on what we're vibing in mm. that session. And I think clinical judgment comes in there. Um, so if you attend an Esprit Concrete class that's run by Georgia and Yao versus mm. run by me and Yao, it's going to be hugely different. Mm. And we don't technically call it Esprit Concrete, we don't call it Esprit Concrete method if I'm not there. Mm. So the idea would be in the future, I'd like to have another counselling psychologist with me um, to substitute me so that all the classes have this mm. dimension to it. Um, unless the person has asked for not that. Yeah. So um, Georgia's working towards her level two. Um, so is Daniel. Um, Lou is kind of really, really trying to focus it a little bit more on the integration between Aussie Déplacement and dance mm -hmm. um, and how we kind of gauge our relationship to our identity and societal impact and everything through that form of movement. Mm -hmm. um, and then towards the end, we kind of either make Skype available or we make sure we've got enough time at the end for a debrief. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like, you know, when Jan has his end of session uh, discussions and we mm. all sit in a circle and we just take a moment to kind of like soak stuff up mm -hmm. um, if people feel comfortable to do it in a group they do and if not we always give them the option like in the next two three hours like we're going to be about we're going to eat together as well like mm -hmm. if you want to come and talk to me and it's surprising how receptive people mm. are to that you know um, I think the biggest thing is just I don't try to defend what I do uh, sometimes I know that it may come across as being defensive because I'm trying to um, either describe what I'm doing or try to explain the benefits of it. But I try to really see what the criticism that we're getting mm -hmm. is about. So what things are concrete that we actually maybe really need to take home and think about. Mm -hmm. um, but what might also be about the way that the other person has interpreted what we do. Yeah. Um, and I think that dimension to it is the difference because our classes are about how what we do is affecting the other person mm -hmm. that attendee so if it's affecting it negatively why is that mm -hmm. you know uh 
how does it benefit them to get affected? Mm -hmm. Is there something maybe that we can work on to actually shift their relationship to that view? Um, <clears throat> and therefore, work with us usually takes minimum of 12 weeks because it's quite a, a complicated process for some. Mm -hmm. um, but it's always a process that, you know, people sign up for. And uh, I do also get a strong kind of say in when I think things should be said. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's a judgment call that I yep. make. Um, but I'm, I am trained, hopefully, yep. my uni would say, I am trained to uh, manage the fallout of that as well and just show people that it's okay if stuff doesn't go right and mm -hmm. we can talk about it and we can sit with it and we can process it. And they're not alone in that. Um, yeah. So, yeah. There's a lot of people, like you were saying, 12 people in a class mm. and the amount of like observation that you would do in just an hour and a half, do you find that ideally, would it be a smaller group that you would work with or is 12 people in one class fine? Because financially, we try to keep our classes really low cost, mm -hmm. we can't make it smaller than, say, eight. Okay. Because otherwise we can't afford the coaching. Right. Um, and a lot of us are actually full-time at Esprit Concrete. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, it's a cost thing. But it's also, again, as I said, like right now, I'm giving you so much information. Mm -hmm. In a class, one person will maybe be reminded of a pattern that we talked about last week, twice during that session. Okay. If it's their first session, all that's going to happen at the end of that session is just, how did you experience it? What kind of stuff did you pick up? Okay. You know, uh, And throughout the class, the, the stuff that we give people to think about, generally, if it needs an in-depth ex explanation, it will only be two or three people that I take aside and I kind of spend three minutes with. Okay. Otherwise, the rest is stuff that you can kind of shout out and it's almost like giving them cues, so kind of alerting them of which space to think about um, in either their emotional realm or their physical realm. Or, you know, you see somebody doing a Kong the whole time and they just keep bringing their feet through and they keep bringing their feet through. And you're like, you've asked them, you know, to think about the head going forward or whatever. Mm. And at that point, that's when I intervene and I kind of say, you know, just tell me a little bit about your history with movement. Let me tell you a little bit about your history with going forward in things. And I draw links, not just movement based going forward but generally, and that moves into assertiveness, thinking about it, and confidence, thoughts, and personality traits. Are you a driver? Are you a doer? Are you, a, are you somebody that likes to follow? Um, and all of that chain of thought is just what I hold in my head. Mm -hmm. What I tell them is like two things, maybe. Um, but then I tell them if they stay with us and they keep training with us, this is something we can explore. And week on week on week, I use that formulation to kind of inform the feedback I give them. Oh. Um, so I think, you know, when I talk about Esprit Concrete like this, it sounds like huge inundation of, you know, I don't know if that's a word, but hugely inundated with uh, detail. And some sessions feel like that, yep. but most sessions from our regulars anyway, they kind of get to a point after three or four weeks where they know what they're working on. Mm. So the feedback, they know it's coming and they know what to expect and they know what kind of texture it looks like. And if it's something that is uh, something new or something slightly deeper, mm. they always have it in a kind of one-to-one -one space with me where they can ask questions and they can um, be asked questions and then they move back to the group. Yeah. And that's something we just normalize. It's um, from the very beginning, you know, 
we always ask people if they've had sessions before of mm. therapy. Mm. Um, we ask them how they feel about it, just the concept. Um, we tell them it's going to happen and that they have full right to just tell us no, like, I don't feel like talking to you today. Yeah. Absolutely fine. Um, as long as people are there, learning's being done. And it's just, it's just dependent on, you know, what they bring in that day and what we decide to teach that mm. day. And how do those two marry up? So you've done sessions like in your uh, shadowing, shadowing or just your what is it called when you're completing your your school and you have to do certain hours? Oh, I've done placements. <laughs> <laughs> that word. Um, so how does your experience with placements? differ from your um your work with esprit like how does a therapy session look like different um so the therapy session um at my clinic so now i have two clinics on tuesday and on saturday um one is actually working um in a space that was that i got hooked up with because of my one of my supervisors from one of the placements on my course Um, so my idea is kind of to try to move towards having a peer supervision session there so that I'm still in touch with counselling psychologists working and informing my work. Mm-hmm. I'm very lucky that I still have that relationship. And mm-hmm. my supervisor for the clients that I have privately um, that work through Esprit Concrete is also a previous supervisor who I worked with at the Royal Free mm-hmm. Hospital. Um, and I specifically chose those supervisors because Uh, on those two placements, I did drug and alcohol placements, I did generalized placements, I did um, working with uh, dermatology specifically and the body, inflammation, mm. uh, lifestyle adjustment with that, that kind of side of it, so body things. Um, and then I also did uh, hoarding. Yeah. Um, so people who are uh, collectors or um, have trouble discarding or just have a lot of basically what I came to realize is just huge amounts of trauma. Mm. and it looks and feels in the shape of a thing basically Mm. um and sometimes a lot of things um so my one supervisor who i work with on saturday or at least in that space uh she supervised me while i was at hoarding uk Mm. and the other supervisor supervised me when i was working with inflammatory conditions at the royal free Mm. um and surprisingly the stuff that's similar is that all the people who come in to esprit concrete If they stay with us for at least six weeks, they all have a, a kind of formulation. So early experiences through to triggers to through to a maintenance cycle of how they deal with these triggers. Mm-hmm. That kind of map is one that I have of them. Mm. Yeah, Whether I share that with them or not is dependent on how much they actually tell me they want to work on something. Mm. Yeah. So somebody who just turns up to a class and says, I'm just here to learn parkour, they may never hear that formulation. But they may have certain things that we give them in feedback that is informed by that formulation. And that formulation doesn't change no matter what where I go and work therapy. So um, I was lucky enough on my course to be taught by somebody, um, Philip Hayton, who actually has a very interesting way of conceptualizing clients that involves um, doing something that is multi-formulaic, which means that uh, it's not just about bringing different principles from different models to think about a client. It's about thinking about the client in such a systemic way that the macro and the micro is constantly working together. Okay. 
and you're kind of seeing that person in a context that needs to keep expanding and shrinking in order for you to be working on something quite um, uh, salient, but while holding all this data about them in the back. And I do use this approach on hoarding um, populations or people with hoarding, sorry. Um, and I found that the depth to which you can honest, understand a client was so overwhelming almost because there was so much of it mm. that I started to realize that I'd like to actually hold these formulations of people that I work with, but tailor my working to them depending on what they need. So whether that's cognitive behavioral approaches, whether that's psychodynamic approaches, whether that's systemic approaches, doesn't really matter. But I try to integrate as and when the client needs that. Mm. And all of that is exactly the same as all the placements I've done. Um, if I worked in a CBT placement, things had to be very cognitive behavioral uh, directed. Mm. So the formulation looks different to another one. Mm. Um, if I worked with drug and alcohol, there was a lot of motivational interviewing. But I kind of source on all of those experiences with the people in front of me. So my the private clients I have range from people going through personality disorders, people suffering with alcohol abuse, um, people working on dementia. Um, and recently, I think the main difference has been that I've incorporated all the psychodynamic psychology that comes from hoarding mm. in terms of how people relate to objects and what the objects signify and represent. Okay along with all the identity changes, the loss, the bereavement, the grieving that happened within the uh, inflammatory conditions unit that I worked in, okay. in order to bring a movement aspect to it. Because what we're doing in parkour is interacting with objects. And what we're doing is we're exposing ourselves, our, our, our outer shell, to these objects. Um, so I actually found that those two placements informed my approach to working with parkour really beautifully, because they brought the out and the in to a movement practice that I feel has exactly the same dynamic, the out and the in, working mm -hmm. simultaneously. Um, so in short, the actual session looks exactly the same. When you're in front of me, a therapy session is a therapy session. But the thinking behind it, those two placements inform me the most um, in terms of the approach. Mm. And they also informed my work in my creativity. Um, because to be able to kind of adapt what already exists to something that you may not have seen before, because mm -hmm. even though I've been training for five years, there's stuff I'm never going to have seen, you know, for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And you kind of have to be creative with how you adapt those, fa those fundamental principles to fit the person in front of you mm -hmm. and their needs. Um, and I think that Alex Mazzara from Royal Free and Margaret Hooper, they allowed me that space to actually integrate things that hadn't been integrated before within that space so that now when I'm doing it with parkour I go in with slightly more confidence than I would ever have imagined I have and I think that's really necessary for the clinical judgment calls I have to make sometimes both in training mm. but also in a clinic mm. um, so yeah so I find that you're able to break down your thoughts quite well I assume that has to happen given <clears throat> that what you do is so I was gonna say abstract it's just you have the mm. words to form what it is that you're doing and what you need to grab and then make the judgment so future yeah <laughs> I mean um right now we've got a lot of things going on um <clears throat> 
a really important thing for me is just that I need to finish my thesis. <laughs> mm. um, it's looking really good at the moment in terms of the actual model formulation and how um, it's coming across. Uh, but I just don't have that much time, so I'm take, going to take some time soon to actually just finish that. Um, and I'm hoping draft will be done by end of March. I'm hoping telling you that is actually going to make me there. <laughs> um, but no, uh, in line with that, the research part of Esprit Concrete, I want to make sure is a real priority for me. Um, so not just doing this piece of work as my doctorate and then never researching again. Yeah. I want us to keep researching <laughs> what we're doing with different populations. Um, how we're doing it, what's working about it, what isn't. Um, having a really uh, service user informed approach to our evaluation of what we do is really key for me. Um, and hopefully getting some of the people who have been through our service to end up delivering our service would be my ultimate goal. So we have somebody even, for example, within the Crisis UK charity that we work in, mm -hmm. that's really thinking about the fact that he wants to maybe uh, become an assistant coach to actually help within homelessness having mm. been through it himself that kind of you know in the door and now being the person who's opening the door for someone else approach mm. is what I would love Esprit Concrete to be about um, I think that would really make it driven by the community um, but informed by um, people who've had similar experiences to me in terms of their training but also their relationship to therapy so you know there isn't one form of therapy that's right um, but for Esprit Concrete, you kind of really need to have a strong understanding of, or at least believe you have a strong understanding of parkour. Um, you have to have a good understanding of Art du Déplacement in the way the Yamakasi kind of mm -hmm. teach it. Um, and you also need to have a really solid ability to integrate and work on that kind of intuition um, as a therapist. And in order for me to get another me, I need to find somebody to train um, mm -hmm. to do that. Uh, as a the movement side of things, so like Yao is a level two coach, he kind of plans the classes movement-wise. Mm -hmm. um, you just need to be open, you know, to what we do, really. Mm -hmm. And my idea would be that if we have three coaches, we have three therapists, but, three level twos. But on the therapy side, they haven't had all that education for... No, but I mean, they. every time you come in, you have six months to a year of training anyway. Okay, so during that, that time, there's a kind of sense of learning how to be able to hold um, the person's functioning and their uh, way of being okay. while you're teaching. Um, so all the people who work with us get supervision. Some of them are starting personal therapy themselves. Mm. Um, they We have regular team meetings that are at least once a month. We have uh, team supervision and team training. Mm. Um, there's a lot of time. I think it's roughly about 18 hours a week that goes into mm. just team building, mm. team development. Um, so I think the integration of a parkour practitioner or an ADD practitioner into uh, this model is not complicated, but I think it does require that person to be really open to what we do. Um, mm -hmm. So if there's too much resistance, it just costs us too much investment into trying to figure out what that's about. Um, so ideally, I'd like to get Esprit Concrete to a position where we have at least two therapists and three lead coaches, mm -hmm. um, two or three assistant coaches. But those are the people who are either wanting to go through a kind of internship with us. And we get quite a lot of requests for that mm. um, or people who eventually want to be level two.
in order for us to have a nice balance between those individual coaches kind of figuring out what kind of coaches they specifically want to be so their mm. own identity is growing mm -hmm. um, while they're still also learning about how to integrate the psychology part into the practice mm -hmm. um, and allowing them to kind of have a mix between teaching group having private sessions which are just about who they are as a coach and that person mm -hmm. um, being able to still do the performance side of things and ultimately having more of a impact on how nationally and maybe even internationally we're integrating mental health and mental well-being into the practice you know um, and the delivery of the discipline so for me a personal goal, goal of mine is to try to use the last four or five years of experience to um, impact Parkour UK's kind of policy making as much as possible mm -hmm. um, wherever I'm allowed to and right. wherever uh, they see fit as well mm -hmm. um, in order for us to get a kind of more standardized approach to the mental health side of things mm -hmm. because we have governing bodies that have been around for years you know mm -hmm. decades and their expertise and their knowledge is something that I am backed by as a therapist and yep. I kind of want to integrate that into um, the parkour setting um, but also then understanding that that comes along with this openness and the sharing and transparency of our practice and our work that if somebody comes knocking at the door and wants to observe a class yep. it's okay we have to be able to take that feedback yep. if somebody wants to know how exactly you're doing mental health work um, you need to be okay to kind of volunteer that information and change maybe what you're doing mm -hmm. um, integrate audit and assessment and evaluation a little bit more mm -hmm. um, for us to become you know a little bit more holistic in our practice and not so wishy-washy because we're still mm -hmm. new at all of this and mm -hmm. I think I don't think that um, you know standardization is key but I think that there's a lot of standardization that's important in order to maintain excellent standards mm -hmm. um, and we need to find a balance between you know how do we keep our identity and allow that creativity and freedom of teaching however you want to teach because it is quite a exploratory thing that mm -hmm. we're in but still maintain some kind of idea of you know, um, boundaries and uh, risk assessment and um, conceptualization, I guess, of what harm could be done, you know, without us knowing mm -hmm. um, and having people monitoring that. Uh, so that's kind of an avenue I want to take. Um, and as a whole, just really have research, practice and teaching all kind of coexisting, both, you know, within certain university settings, mm. uh, school settings, public settings and NGO settings, charity mm -hmm. settings. Um, yeah. In the North research, do you plan to, do you mean by publishing research or by just internal research and then publishing? No, yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I think for me, Gaining credibility as a potential psychologist doing this is something that I'm really mindful of. It's something I lose a lot of sleep over. You know, mm. I I do have the resources of very, very intelligent people around me from my discipline, you know, working on groundbreaking things that actually have to stand up to their tests, you know. Uh, and I feel like I want to make sure that I say yes to all those amazing professors who've kind of offered their help and stuff to to find a way for me to publish what we research about Esprit Concrete so mm. that we make sure the research is also as robust as the practice. Because yeah. often when you're researching, that's a great way to find out what you're doing wrong. 
Um, so if we do the research bit right, then mm-hmm. hopefully we make the practice better. Mm-hmm. And I want it to kind of have this figure of eight kind of relationship together. Um, and, you know, it's important for me to gain respect from the people who trained me, you mm-hmm. know, and the discipline that I come from. Counseling psychology in and of itself is quite young, which is why so many people mm-hmm. are supporting what I'm doing, because it's it's the discipline um, of psychologists that for me is really the most humanistic and the most uh, centered on the shared experience, Mm -hmm. you know, and the relationship is key to that. So I feel like it's the best discipline to represent what I'm doing and it's one that I respect a lot. And it being young and parkour being young means that I see a bright future for us both. Um, But I need to have support from the parkour community as well as support from my peers within psychology. Um, So, so far so good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's a one step at a time ongoing, you mm-hmm. know, search. Uh, and yeah, ultimately, if you want an intervention to be called an intervention, you have to have it validated. So mm-hmm. I just need to figure out how to do that, really, um, in a way that isn't overly complicated, but is robust. I don't know. From the sounds of it, it seems like you already are taking all those steps necessary. They're, it's just especially how you just described it it's just taking those steps and then eventually quality speaks for itself you can see the um the breadcrumbs that you leave <laughs> as you would say and yeah like we we're seeing yesterday about what makes a quality coach what does that even mean especially with parkour being such a new new discipline and I was thinking a bit more about that today. And aside from having the results, like, I don't know, is it also because it's such a new thing that they're, it's just really hard to find out where all these quality coaches are? Or yeah. do you have any further thoughts about that? I mean, I think that um, quality usually is has a number placed on it because usually lack of quality incurs a cost. Mm. Um, And therefore I believe that it's a financially driven model that is based around something that stems from needing insurance, you know, needing to be able to have somebody to kind of blame Mm. for something happening. Mm. Um, And I think that that's just the reality of the world we live in. Mm. Uh, I don't think I ever would have done a doctorate if, I didn't need that to be able to do what I'm doing today. Really? Yeah, I didn't at all see myself as an academic. I still don't. The reason I'm faffing about with a lot of the work that I need to do is because that idea of me being smart or intelligent or academic, intellectual, it's not something that's ingrained in me. It's kind of something that I feel I'm beginning to realise maybe I have shades of Mm. as I do this course and as I begin to step into my career but I kind of just always knew I want to understand why people do what they do Mm. I'm more than that I want to understand why the hell I do what I do (laughs) and the best way that I found to do that even though initially I had wanted to do medicine was actually I realized I don't want to fix the problem as much as I want to understand it but I have a tendency to need to fix Mm. so actually how do I rectify that Mm. Um, and because that was what I was driven with I kind of never really put that much value on the titles or the qualifications. 
I kind of just kept saying, you know, well, to get there, I need to do that. So let's just do it. Mm. But actually, the more that I've done it, the more that I realize what kind of responsibility people lay at my feet now, mm-hmm. having finished all the clinical side of what I need to do. Officially, if I go for a job, I am a counseling psychologist. Mm-hmm. Those roles come with huge responsibility. And I think at that point, I realized how imperative it was that I was trained for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a rite of passage. You know, I would I am not who I was five years ago. So in terms of quality, I think having an assessment pathway that teaches you how to manage all the different aspects of coaching, for mm-hmm. example, um, not just in teaching movement, but mm-hmm. also in how to be a leader mm-hmm. in how to set an example, how to maintain those responsibilities, what to do in scenarios where things go wrong and having the assertiveness to take charge and say, you know what, I take this one because mm-hmm. I'm the one in charge. That stuff for me is what quality coaching is about. So it's not just about being able to teach somebody how to fly, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I think the only reason why these days it's so important comes in then with the thing that I luckily don't feel we have as much as what I've realized you have in the States. But uh, the insurance side of things, you know, we still haven't got that level of privatization right now where we're accountable for everything financially. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's fast moving there, even in London. Mm-hmm. And for that, we need proof that we can do what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing that I guess is debatable is sometimes I think it's easy for a new discipline to have monopoly over what kind of qualification signifies that you're trained to a certain level. Mm -hmm. And I think that the reality is that because there are so many different interpretations of what we do, and there's so many interpretations of how should we deliver Mm -hmm. this thing that we believe is the right thing, Mm -hmm. we have to allow people to develop their own um, pathways. We have to allow people to develop their own um, marking schemes, you know, and Mm -hmm. their own uh, curriculums. For those people who have the patience to do it, it's a bloody difficult job, you know, Mm -hmm. and I take my hat off to everyone who has put time into kind of formally standardizing something Mm -hmm. that can package up what you think should be taught and allowed somebody else now the tools to teach that is phenomenal. It's really great. Um, But it also allows a space to challenge that. And I think more people who think that it should be maybe taught differently or that there are different qualities of coaching that are not included within that system should just try to put in the work to actually add to it um, yeah. or come up with something different um, if that's what they want to do. I know that there are a lot of people at the moment, I mean, Street Movement, um, Parkour One, uh, Parkour Generations, all of them have very different uh, pathways, but kind of to get to the same point, you know, they want that person to have the best experience they can yeah. in growing movement wise, but also as a person Mm -hmm. and with that comes also their understanding of what the practice is Um, what I'd really like to see is in terms of what makes a good coach a good coach I think we need a lot more knowledge sharing Um, Mm -hmm. I think we need a melting pot of the great things about each part of the world and their parkour within something Mm. Um, and I know that that takes a lot of time it takes a lot of resources that we don't have there is probably not going to be any funding for that kind of thing But if we actually want to say that we're a community-driven art form and that we're almost democratic because that's the kind of art form we're in, Mm -hmm. we need to not work in silos and we need to reach out and actually have people sharing that amazingly rich, you know, pool of knowledge Mm -hmm. that all these hubs have. Because 
I don't think any one person is right. And I think that um, I'm always sending my coaches and me going myself whenever I can to do other people's classes because the, I really want to mm. um, widen our scope, you know, movement wise. And on the psychology side, um, because there isn't there isn't as much within parkour at the moment like uh, that I feel are doing it similar to what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I have sourced people who are doing it in the dance world. Or recently I found somebody who's uh, doing something similar in the martial, martial arts world and I'm hoping to connect with her next year mm -hmm. um, in order to strengthen my approach and see what needs to change and, you know, uh, what needs to be adapted or what needs to be more of what it already is. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think what makes the best coach, I don't know, but open-mindedness for me is the front sort of forerunning thing and never really thinking that you've got it down because I think then you stop being a great coach because I think, you know, to be a great coach, you need to be a great student. Mm -hmm. That's what I believe. Um, that's why I love the psychology discipline that I'm in um, and that a lot of psychologists are in that just require career personal development all the time. We have logs for it, you know. We have to stay within therapy if we can. We have supervision all the time. And mm. these things keep me in check. They keep me humble. They keep me not being a maverick doing my own thing, regardless mm. of what anyone thinks. And... You know, I think that's important. And I think it builds trust with my students to know that I'm, I am also some, to some degree being managed, you mm -hmm. know, and kept an eye on. Um, otherwise, I'm not doing what I'm teaching, you know. Perfect. I feel like there's so many other questions that, <laughs> that aren't even relevant to this now that I want to ask you. So we can, we can end it off here. Let's see what time that we got this to. One hour on the dot. <laughs> so is there anything else that you would like to share with the, with on this episode, with, with the world, adding on to what we have just talked about or yeah. anything? I mean, I think I just, you know, as is normal for a new company coming into, you know, what is a young discipline but of such a fast-growing one that there's so many people doing it everywhere now and so many great organizations already so established I think I spent a lot of time really really reaching out and I don't stop you know to mm. reaching out saying look we're here we're doing this new thing like you know can we come show you you know that sort of thing and I think um I just urge people to you know challenge the doubt that they have by actually finding out if they're right you mm. know come come and speak to us come and get to know us um it doesn't have to be in person, you know, we, we know that people live far away, but there are so many people who um, who don't actually run organizations technically, just people who practice. Usually mm -hmm. I get more questions from them than I do from people who own companies. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd really like to, you know, ha get to a point where it's a little bit more balanced between how much I'm reaching out and mm -hmm. how much other people are just maybe curious to find out what we do because... Mm -hmm. I know how hard it is for me to explain what we do, but I feel like every time I've had somebody come and meet me, mm -hmm. they've left being able to maybe explain it better than I can. <laughs> and I feel like that's that's maybe the key. And to that uh, kind of degree, that's why we practice art du déplacement parcours, mm -hmm. you know, uh, with psychology, because there's a very personal need to meet people and share what we do mm. in a very similar way to the yamak like mm -hmm. you can't possibly comprehend mm. what the yamak do unless you spend time with them so i think yeah just 
you know, one day I'll get it nicely on paper, but not for another couple of years. So, you know, just come find us and come question us and drill us about what it is that we do and see what's up, really. Um, it mm-hmm. would help us a lot and it would, you know, reassure us that there is interest out there and that there are still people for us to learn from as well that maybe we won't notice on Facebook or anywhere mm-hmm. else. And we just want to share. So, yeah, hopefully people will um, do that. Well, the thing is, it's it's curious for me if you are practicing to not be interested on the psychological side like obviously everyone practices for different reasons but if you are practicing for the reason to improve yourself this is one of the best tools to do so because it gives you this vocabulary that that's so well researched and so well used already in the world and why not why not yeah, I think I think my relationship to that question is just kind of becoming a little bit more like it's a little bit like when a beginner comes to a class and for some reason somebody's uh decided to do a massive arm jump, you mm. know. And we haven't started the class and we haven't warmed up. Right. And that person's reaction is just, "Oh my god, I can't do that." Sometimes I think that what we do can seem very strange and weird and overwhelming just because it is unknown, right. but the connotations of what we do has been established over the last hundreds of years. You know, therapy mm. has a stigma. Um, right. Parkour is fast having a stigma. You know, right. we, we suffer with those things of it being too risky and being something that's an extreme sport mm-hmm. and something that's just reckless and endangering the walls of Archway. You know, <laughs> that's that stuff we live with. And I think, I guess I'm just urging people to kind of, I don't know, try to get to know us so that they don't have to kind of uh, necessarily believe in what we do, yeah. but get to know us so that they can know who we are and then they can better judge why we're doing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Because I think intentionality is everything. Mm-hmm. And most of the time we don't get to really talk to people about why we do what we do mm-hmm. or why we believe we're doing this. We just get to put posts on Facebook and Instagram and stuff and you see a lot of mental health talk and you think, you know, Oh, therapy. (laughs) So much overthinking. Like, I don't want all those words. I don't want all that data. But actually, it's the intention of what we're doing that Mm. needs to be understood. Mm. And how that intention could work for you Mm -hmm. is probably not what you're going to see on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Because the first thing we're going to do is get to know you. Mm -hmm. And that's the part of all of the this, you know, social media that's really hard to convey is it doesn't start with us. Mm-hmm. It actually starts with the client. Mm-hmm. Um, but because we're the people promoting ourselves, we have to sell what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are going to hopefully have some way of getting testimonials written up. There are a few people I've already approached and gained consent from, mm-hmm. especially the people who have worked with me as well as doing the classes. Mm-hmm. Um, so once those are up, people have a better understanding of what kind of experience they've had. Um, and knowing that they didn't necessarily come in wanting to work on something specific. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um they just came because they wanted a jump or they came because there was a free women's course and they were like, let's try it. I'm in the area. Mm-hmm. Um, and somehow they've stayed with us for two years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good point. The unknown is scary. It is for me. Every time I look at a concrete. <laughs> <laughs> just like yesterday. Mm. All right. Thank you very much, Kasturi. Thank you, Mandy. We shall end this right now.